Let's pray together. Father, the words that we've sung are what we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would speak by your word. We pray that you would cause us to stand in your truth. We pray that you would build your church on the foundation of your word. We pray that you would make your word profitable to us. And we pray, Lord, that through all this, you would fill the earth with your glory. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, some brothers are going to be passing out to you a color-coded chiasm that I've, that I've prepared for you this morning. And um, you'll just have to indulge uh, the way that I'm going to nerd out on the passage that's before us. So uh, I would invite you to open with me to Exodus chapter 6. And we, I'm so thankful that our visitors are here with us this morning. You know, as J.O. often says, I didn't write the Bible. I didn't decide for there to be genealogies in the Bible. But listen, the Bible is true. And when Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, that's a true statement. This text before us is profitable. And I hope that one of the takeaways from this sermon will be that your confidence in God's word is strengthened and you are renewed in your willingness to keep looking at and keep studying and keep examining God's word because even in unexpected places, he has glorious truth for us. So all scripture is breathed out by God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And uh, both in Psalms and in Proverbs and in 2 Samuel, we read this, this statement, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true, even the words in a genealogy. So we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, and continuing through chapter 7, verse 13. I would encourage you to open there. The first part of this passage, Exodus 6, verses 10 through 30, so that's most of Exodus chapter 6 is concerned with this genealogy that is in this, um, this color-coded chiasm that has been handed out to you, which we'll look at in more detail as we proceed. I would encourage you to um, maybe just set it aside, and when the time comes, I'll direct your attention to it. So there's a genealogy in the first part in chapter 6, and then in the second part in chapter 7, what, we're, what we have before us is the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. And this is a, a somewhat frightening truth to us because it shows us that God is absolutely sovereign over everyone who has ever lived. And God is absolutely free to do as he pleases in the heavens above, on the earth beneath, and in the hearts of those whom he has created. So, as we approach this passage, let me just briefly summarize for you what we've seen in the book of Exodus to this point. So just to think with you about Exodus chapters 1 and 2. You know, the book opens with the people of Israel being fruitful and multiplying. And, and that language is sounding notes from Genesis 1, all the way back to Genesis 1.28, where God blessed 
uh, the man and the woman that he's just created and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then that be fruitful and multiply language echoes across the book of Genesis. And we get to the book of Exodus and we see that God is keeping his word and that God's people are being fruitful and multiplying. And, and yet his people are afflicted. They've gone down into Egypt and the Egyptians have enslaved them and they're beating them and, and they're, they're subjecting them to harsh labor. And so you have this, this tension between, on the one hand, God is keeping his word and blessing his people. On the other hand, they're suffering terribly. And then as, as the opening two chapters proceed, we, we see that the Lord is raising up for them a deliverer, Moses, and yet the people whom he is going to deliver reject him. And, and this is really kind of the way the whole Bible works. God is blessing his people, and yet his people are suffering in the world. God is raising up a savior for his people, and that very savior they reject. So, I mean, does this sound familiar? This is exactly what happens in the New Testament when Jesus comes along. And then as you continue in cha into chapters 3 and 4, we have this extended passage where Moses meets the Lord at Mount Sinai. So Moses has been shepherding the flock. He's been rejected by the people of Israel. He spends 40 years of his life in Egypt, and then he, he has to flee Egypt because he had slain that Egyptian, and his own people rejected him. He goes out into the wilderness. He's shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, and he takes them around, and they get to Mount Sinai, him and the sheep, and then the Lord appears to him in the burning bush. And the Lord tells Moses that he is to go back to, to Egypt and bring his people out of Egypt. And we see some things in Exodus chapter 3 that I want to draw your attention to. So I want to draw your attention. Look at Exodus chapter 3 verse 18. The Lord says to Moses in Exodus 3, 18, They, the people of Israel, will listen to your voice. And as the chapters unfold, as we've been sort of tracking with this, at making our way to chapter 6, We've seen that initially Moses comes and he works the signs that God gave him to work and the people believe and they, they, they do listen to Moses' voice. And then God, God sends Moses into Pharaoh and Pharaoh says to Moses, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you people are lazy. And that's why you're asking to go out into the wilderness to sacrifice to this God. You need more work to do. And so he takes away the straw from them and he gives them harsher service and harsher labor. And then the people get mad at Moses and Aaron. And then look at chapter 6, verse 9, right before the passage that we're on. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the, the people of Israel are kind of going back and forth between listening to Moses and not listening to Moses. But chapter 318 has set the trajectory. And 318 tells us they will listen to the voice of Moses. They will hear the word of God. And it's as, low, it's as though the Lord is saying, I am going to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then look at the next couple of verses there in Exodus 3. There in verse 19, the Lord says, Exodus 3, 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So here we're right up on the mystery. The mystery is God knows Pharaoh's not going to let those people go. 
The mystery is, God says, Israel is going to listen to your voice, Moses, but essentially Pharaoh is not going to listen to you, Moses. And we, we read earlier in our, in our call to worship a very important statement that Paul quotes in Romans 9 from Exodus 33 that I just want to put on the table right here, right now. The Lord says to Moses, Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Let me translate that for you. God does not owe mercy to anyone. God can freely decide to whom and when he will extend his mercy. You have no ability to constrain or compel God to give you mercy. You have no right to complain if God does not show you mercy. Because the Bible teaches that we are all rebels. Rebels whose lives are forfeit. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't owe any of us mercy. And so, listen to me. If you are hearing the sound of my voice, if you are hearing this text of Scripture taught, God is mercifully extending his kindness to you. And you are being given an opportunity to respond to the mercy of God. And we want to urge you and plead with you to be like Israel, not like Pharaoh. Listen to the word of God. Receive the word of God. Don't be like Pharaoh who would not listen and who would only do what God was going to tell him to do under compulsion. Don't, be, don't go the way of Pharaoh. Okay, so... Uh, the Lord meets Moses at Mount Sinai, and then he sends Moses back into Egypt. They, they go to, uh, Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh, and we saw this last time in Exodus chapter 5. They say to Pharaoh in Exodus 5.1, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. And then verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? And, and we see there this dismissive disregard on the part of Pharaoh. He has no interest in obeying the word of this foreign God whom he does not respect and he does not know. Now, what the Lord is going to do essentially is confirm and strengthen Pharaoh in his own rebellion. So already before this, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord had said to to uh, Moses, the, this is Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people, people go. It's as though the Lord is saying to Moses, Pharaoh is in rebellion against me, and I am going to strengthen him and confirm him in that rebellion. And, 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 we saw already in this service why the Lord uh, chooses to do that. We, we saw it in our call to worship. The Lord is going to say in Exodus 9.16, again, this is, this is quoted by Paul over in Romans 9, that he raised Pharaoh up to show his great power in Pharaoh. So Pharaoh rejects this commission from Moses. And then uh, in response to, as if in response to Pharaoh saying, who is Yahweh, we saw uh, the last time we were together in the book of Exodus, how the Lord in chapter 6, uh, in, the, in verses 1 through 9, repeatedly says, I 
am Yahweh. And as we look at what he says there, if you look, for instance, at Exodus 6-2, I am Yahweh, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And then down in verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And then verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And then verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Here's what the Lord is saying. I am Yahweh, that's who I am, and I'm a God who keeps my promises. That's what he's saying. Because what he's reiterating here are the promises that he made to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. And he's saying to Moses, Moses, Pharaoh has said, who is this Yahweh? I'm Yahweh, and I'm the God who keeps my promises. That's what's, that's what's going on to this point in the passage. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 6, verse 10, where we, we are ready to look at this genealogy. But before we look at it, I want to ask the question, why would Moses insert a genealogy here? Why would we have a list of names at this point in the narrative? And so to get at that question, let me just briefly say what's going to come after this. So at the beginning of chapter 7, the Lord is going to send Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh again. It's as though he, he goes one, before the plagues start. One last time, Moses and Aaron are going to be sent into Pharaoh to say, let them go. And Pharaoh's going to say, no. And so the Lord's going to say, okay, here come the plagues. And then you know the story, the ten plagues fall, culminating in the death of the firstborn and the liberation of Israel from Egypt. And so the, the genealogy accomplishes several purposes for Moses as he tells the story. One thing that the genealogy does is it creates narrative space, which, which functions to create a sense of the passage of time so that we don't just go directly from Pharaoh saying, who is Yahweh, to the Lord saying, I'm Yahweh, to now here come Moses and Aaron again to say to Pharaoh, let them go. The insertion of the genealogy gives us the impression that some time has passed here. And probably there was uh, at least a space of days between the, the, the first sending of Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh because in chapter 5 we, we read of the way that Pharaoh makes their life more difficult with, with harsher labor. So the genealogy gives us some narrative space as though some time has passed. Also, you know, back in chapter 2, we, we read about how Moses was born to a Levite father and a Levite mother, but then he was, he was put in the ark and, and put in the river. He's put in the basket and put in the river, and then he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. And in chapter 2, verse 10, we actually read that Moses became the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. And this could create some interesting questions about the identity of Moses. And one of the things that's interesting about this is the way that there were interesting questions about the one whom Moses typified. You remember in John 7, they say to Jesus, is it not rightly said of you that you are a Samaritan? Now, where would that come from? Well, probably the word had gotten out that Mary and Joseph had conceived Jesus before they officially came, before they were officially married. And so probably the rumor went out that Mary must have gotten mixed up with a Samaritan and thus this resulted in the conception of the Lord Jesus. So there were questions about his, his parentage, his paternity. And, and in the same way, 
It could be that there were questions about the paternity of Moses because he had grown up in the house of Pharaoh. And so the insertion of the genealogy, it's like, it's like Moses says, here are the receipts on my line of descent. And, and as a result of this, nobody questions this now. Everybody knows who Moses is. And then thirdly, so we got narrative space inserted, we get the receipts on Moses' parentage, and then thirdly, this genealogy highlights the Levites and Moses and Aaron, and it highlights Phineas. And so uh, with that, let me invite you now to take this, this nice color-coded chiasm that's been provided to you, and I want to walk through this and, and draw your attention to the, the way that Moses has put this thing together. And the Bible is awesome, and Moses is a literary genius, and we should marvel at what he has accomplished. M Moses is not only a, a literary genius, he's humble because he doesn't draw attention to this. I mean, this is the work, this, this passage, Genesis, Exodus 6, 10 through 30, is probably a passage that most people, they get to and they sort of groan if they know what, what's coming. Oh, here we go, a list of names. This is like the work of a master craftsman. This is amazing, and, and we, should, we should celebrate this. Okay, so look at, look at verse, verses 10 through 12, and I just want to, on, on your sheet here or in your Bible, I'm just going to read through this. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, before we talk about what this means, drop your eyes down to verse 20, verses 28 through 30 at the end of the passage. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, and you notice how I've put the Lord said to Moses in the same color font as the Lord said to Moses in verses 10 and 29. I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, same phrases, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now let's think about what these, these two passages say to us. Um, let's start with this, this um, command from the Lord. And, and let's just think about it in light of what we know is going to happen. Right? We know the end of the story. The people of Israel, they come out of Egypt. Right? And they come out of Egypt as a result of Moses going into Pharaoh and says, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go. So how should Moses respond to the command? Go and say to Pharaoh. Verse 11, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. In light of what we know happens, I think we would say, Moses should stop objecting. He doesn't need to make any excuses. He doesn't need to explain anything about himself. Moses' job is to obey. That's what Moses should do in light of everything that happens. He doesn't do that. Now let's look at what he says in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. And we just saw this in 6.9. Moses spoke, spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses, 6.9. And so now Moses is saying, Israel isn't even listening to me. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And I think that if the Lord were to explain everything to Moses that he's doing, it would, 
it would short-circuit Moses' brain. Because I think if the Lord were to explain, he would say something like this, I know, Moses, I know. And the weakness and the frailty of the people of Israel is being exposed, but I'm going to overcome all that by the power of my word. In spite of their inability to believe, I'm going to bring Israel out, and they are going to hear my word. They're going to encounter me at Sinai. They're going to worship me at Sinai, just like I said they were when I met you at Mount Mount Sinai back in chapters 3 and 4. And with Pharaoh, Moses, I know he's not going to listen to you. That's part of the point. In fact, Moses, I've already told you that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 4.21, and I'm eventually going to reveal to you my purpose for doing that, Moses. But the Lord doesn't give all that to Moses right now. He's patiently, lovingly, graciously enduring these objections uh, from Moses. And look at what Moses says next, which he says this in verse 12 and then again in verse 30. He says, "How then?" In ver- this is verse 12, How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Scholars uh, uh, waste no little ink on what this means, that he is uncircumcised lips. There are some scholars who suggest that Moses had a speech impediment, that maybe he had a lisp or something like this. And for this reason, he refers to himself as having uncircumcised lips. Uh, Others take the view that when you you examine the use of this circumcision, uncircumcision language in the rest of the Old Testament, you get David saying, for instance, of the Philistines and Goliath, um, what is it that this this uncircumcised Philistine is saying about Israel? And so on the basis of that, that that this is sort of a, a way to describe those who belong to Israel and those who don't belong to Israel, they, they surmise, they suggest, maybe it was that Moses had an Egyptian accent. You know, he grew up in the Pharaoh's court as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Maybe he doesn't talk like the Israelites talk. And so the sense in which he has uncircumcised lips is that he sounds like an Egyptian, not like uh, the, the Israelites. I think that doesn't really explain the passage because, in part, um, Moses is saying, not only is Israel not listening to me, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me, and I'm of uncircumcised lips. So if he sounded like an Egyptian, you know, if he was a foreign-sounding speaker, well, it might be uh, good on the ears of Pharaoh, so I don't think that really captures it. I think that Moses is basically saying something along the lines of what he said back in chapter 4 when he said... Uh, In verse uh, 10, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So I think in part, Moses is making the same objection here in chapter 6 that he made back in chapter 4. I'm not a good speaker, but I think he's also, you know, Moses has obviously written this long after the events took place in light of everything else in the Pentateuch. I think he probably brought out Genesis through Deuteronomy at the same time. And we read a few moments ago Deuteronomy chapter 10. And in that passage, Moses commands the people of Israel, circumcise therefore your hearts to the Lord. And if we factor that in and think about what Moses is saying when he says, I am of uncircumcised lips, well, what, it, what does it mean to circumcise your hearts to the Lord? It means to submit yourself to the Lord. 
It means to, in an open-hearted way, receive God's commandments and want to do what God commands. And that's exactly what Moses is not doing, isn't it? Moses has uncircumcised lips in one sense in that he doesn't want to say the words that God is commanding him to say. Now, look at, look at verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and then drop your eyes down to verse, the corresponding section, down in verse 26. And notice how the names Aaron and Moses are reversed here. These are the Aaron and Moses. I think, if I remember correctly, I think this is one of the only places, maybe the only place where Aaron is listed before Moses. And I would suggest that there's a literary reason for the reversal of the order of the names. It's so that you know, there, it's, it's Moses and Aaron in, in the first statement, and then Aaron and Moses in the corresponding second statement. Continuing in verse 13, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then down in verses 26 and 27, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. So this is what Moses and Aaron are being sent in to do. Look at verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses. And then the corresponding statement at the end of verse 25. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. And then that brings us in the middle of verse 14 to the start of the genealogy. And this genealogy is a little bit surprising in that it starts out looking like it's going to review the 12 tribes of Israel. We get first Reuben, that's the firstborn of Jacob, Israel, and then in verse 15, Simeon, and then in verse 16, Levi, and those are the first three sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and then it continues with Judah. But at that point, it's as though uh, Moses has, has gotten where he's going to the Levites, and he just stays there with the tribe of Levi. And, and so this is what I mean when I say that this genealogy really highlights the tribe of Levi. Why would it do that? Well, we're in a book where the, the, the end of this book, chapters 25 through 40, are really going to deal with the, the giving of the tabernacle to Israel. And the Levites are going to serve the Lord at that tabernacle. And all through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the priests are going to figure prominently, and the priestly line goes down from Aaron. And so it's like we're getting the heritage of Levi and then Aaron here in this significant genealogy. Um, notice how at the end of verse 14, when we start into the sons of Reuben, you get Reuben mentioned at the beginning of that list, and then again at the end of the list. These are the clans of Reuben. And then look down at verse 25, where you have Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. And I, I'm suggesting here that Reuben and, and Phineas are standing across from one another. That's why their names are in the same color. Now, why would the genealogy do this? Why would Moses decide to highlight Reuben and Phineas standing across from one another? Uh, another note here about Phineas. Phineas is the only person in this genealogy of his generation. In other words, uh, this genealogy, it only goes down as far as 
Phineas in the, in the line of descent with regard to Phineas. Nobody else has their line traced down to somebody of Phineas, Phineas's generation. And, and here's what I think Moses is highlighting. I think he's highlighting Reuben's sexual immorality in going up to his father's couch and contrasting that with Phineas's commitment to sexual purity. You remember when the, the, Moab, the, the Israelite man takes the Moabite woman into his tent right there in the sight of all Israel? Phineas goes in and he executes them and the Lord gives to him an everlasting covenant in response to that act of righteousness. So I think that Moses wants to highlight the sexual purity in contrast with the sexual immorality of, of Phineas uh, as compared with, with Reuben. And then we have... In verse 15, the clans of Simeon, and so you have these are the sons of Simeon, and then at the end of the verse, these are the clans of Simeon. So Reuben mentioned first and last in, the, in verse 14, Simeon listed first and last in verse 15, and then the corresponding section in verses 21 through 24 um, tells us some information that I want to highlight about Aaron in verse 23. Look at, look at verse 23. Aaron took as his wife... Eli Sheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And I would, I would just invite you to turn on your biblical in, awareness in Tanai and ask yourself, where have I heard these names Aminadab and Nashon before? Those names are in the genealogy of Jesus. Those two, Aminadab and Nashon, they're of the line of Judah. And, and so we've got Aaron, the priest, who marries a woman from the line of Judah, and her name is Elisheba. And Elisheba could also be brought into English as Elizabeth. Now this, I think this is interesting. You've got a priest who, in the next chapter, in chapter 7, we're going to learn that Aaron is 83 years old. So in this narrative, you've got an old priest, 83-year-old priest, who's got... A, a wife from the line of Judah named Elizabeth. And we're tracing, you know, his line of descent. There's, it's interesting, I think, that Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 is an old priest from the line of Aaron, and he's married this woman, Elizabeth, who's a kinswoman of Mary, who's of the line of Judah. And, and so I think that we're getting foreshadowing here of the way that Aaron and Moses are typifying Jesus and John the Baptist. So we continue. Look at, look at verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi. These are the names of the sons. Does that phrase ring a bell? That phrase, these are the names of the sons, are the, those are the very first words of the book of Exodus. Exodus 1.1, go look at it, starts, these are the names of the sons of Jacob. And now we've got, these are the names of the sons of Levi. The repetition of the phrase, again, it, it highlights Levi. It's, it centralizes, at this point, the descendants of Levi. So Levi, oh, notice also there in verse 16, we got that phrase, according to their generations. That's that uh, Toledot statement, like you have in the book of Genesis. And you get a repetition of that phrase at the end of verse 19, according to their generations. And then uh, the, the names of the sons of Levi are Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. 
And then we skip to verse 18. The sons of Kohath are Amram and then some other guys. And Kohath lived 133 years. And then we skip down to verse 20. Amram, the guy just mentioned in verse 18, took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Now, um, um, bear with me for just a moment here. Um, I, I just I feel a need to uh, highlight something. We're going to read later in the book of Exodus that Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years they were in Egypt. Okay, And I think the date of the Exodus is 1446 B.C. If you add 430 to 1446, it takes you back to 1876. Okay, so 430 years in Egypt, Exodus 1446. Notice how um, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. His father, Amram's father was Kohath. Kohath was a son of Levi. Levi came, he was part of the Israelites who came down into Egypt at the start of the 430 years. And Levi's granddaughter marries um, Moses and Aaron's mother, Amram and Jochebed, or Moses' parents. Some people look at this and they say, those numbers just won't work. Those numbers can't work because you've got 430 years. How do you get, you know, from grandfather Levi to granddaughter Jochebed to Moses and Aaron in 430 years? Well, maybe you've heard of this, um, this reality about John Tyler, who was president of the United States of America from 1841 to 1845. He was born in 1790. He died in 1862. He had a son born in 1853 who had a son born in 1928 who's still alive. I mean, that's, that, you know, that's three generations, and, 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 and the father was born in 1790. And I don't know exactly how these numbers work, but I think it's possible to make these numbers work. It's possible, um, it, and I, I could show you the calculations that I wrote up in my journal here if you want to talk about it afterwards. I won't, I won't belabor it. But it's possible, I think, for um, these, these folks to have been born late in their father's lives and for that whole time span to be covered and for Amram, indeed, to father Moses and Aaron as the text says he does. So let me, just, let me just quickly give you some takeaways from this astonishing uh, example of research and record keeping here in the Bible. Um, number one, Moses descends from Abraham, not from Pharaoh's household. That's important for the story of the Bible. Number two, Moses and Aaron are spotlighted in this genealogy. Number three, Aaron married into Judah's line, which as, as I've indicated, I think that this is foreshadowing Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then fourthly, there's literary beauty here that is concerned with real human history and with God keeping his promises. And with that, let's, let's look together at chapter 7 quickly, where we have the hardening of Pharaoh. I think we can do this quickly. Exodus 7, verse 1. 
the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. It's interesting. If, if uh, Aaron's line is foreshadowing John the Baptist, and Moses comes like God to address Pharaoh, that comes, uh, that, that, that's foreshadowing one who will come as God to speak to his adversaries. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Again, the Lord's saying he's going to confirm Pharaoh in his resolve to reject the word of God. And then the Lord continues, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is exactly what's going to happen. The plagues are going to fall uh, by great acts of judgment, which the Lord has already spoken this way back in chapter 6 and all the way back in chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 15. By great acts of judgment, the Lord will liberate Israel from Egypt. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is like the New Testament saying, every knee is going to bow to the Lord Jesus. The Egyptians are going to know. They, they are not going to submit. They are not going to experience God's salvation, but they will know. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus... If you persist in your rejection of the gospel, you will know that Jesus is Lord. You will bow the knee to him. You don't want that to be the way that Pharaoh eventually was forced to bow the knee. We would plead with you to turn from your sin. We would plead with you to embrace the mercy that you are right now receiving the opportunity to enjoy. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So these are the signs. And it's interesting how you've got Aaron and Moses and Moses comes as God to Pharaoh anticipating the one who would come as God. And it's, a, it's like Pharaoh is saying, what sign do you give to show that you have authority to do this thing? Which is exactly the way that the enemies of God would speak to Jesus in the Gospels. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So I don't know what, what the magicians of Pharaoh are doing. I don't know if they've charmed some snakes to make them stiff. And then when they see Aaron do this, they're able to throw their snake on the ground and awaken it. I don't, I don't know what, or maybe they're working with some demonic super supernatural uh, power whereby, whereby they actually turn a staff into a snake. I don't know, 
but the power of God is demonstrated over them when Aaron's snake devours theirs and they refuse to repent. They refuse to submit to the Lord. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And that that reference to the Lord saying Pharaoh's heart would be hardened points back to chapter 4, verse 21, and back to the the statement at the beginning of this chapter, back up in verse 3, to indicate that exactly what the Lord said would happen is what is happening. God's word prevails. All through this narrative, Pharaoh's going to say things that aren't going to come to pass. God's word, everything that God says comes to pass. Everyone will know that he is the Lord. The question for us is, how are we going to respond to God's word? How are we going to respond to the demonstration of God's power? Will we be like Pharaoh and Egypt, hardening our hearts and explaining it away because we've got recourse to some other power that can explain these things or some other explanation that can account for these things? Or will we be prepared to say, Yahweh is Lord? And everything that is typified in Moses' life is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And the salvation that God is going to accomplish at the exodus from Egypt is fulfilled in the salvation that God accomplishes through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Will we be like Pharaoh and his hosts, swallowed up in the Red Sea, Or will we be like the Israelites, baptized into Moses in the the cloud and in the sea as we we receive the fulfillment of that salvation in Christ and obey him and submit to the waters of baptism? This God who is revealing himself in the book of Exodus is worthy of all of our devotion and all of our life service in whatever he has called us to do. He is worth living for. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word would be living and active even as we begin to sing now. I pray, Lord, that the truthfulness of the scriptures, the power of your word to convert sinners and edify saints, I pray that it would be happening even now by the power of your spirit. Lord, make it so that nobody walks out of here a rebel. Make it so that nobody walks out of here with a a Pharaoh-like hardened heart. Cause us to be yours, we pray. Cause us to live for you. Renew in us our eagerness to study the scriptures and give us joy, we ask, as we walk with you the joy that Christ himself came to give us, which he said he wanted to be full. We ask this in his name. Amen.